Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In what do you have hope? Or what is it that Christians should place their hope in? I think that can be a deceptively hard question to answer, unless you're content to give glib or uh, pat answers. It's easier to answer that question if you only find hope you know, like right now, or if you only find hope in life eternal. I'll give some examples of folks who make those kinds of arguments, simplifying Christian hope to either tomorrow afternoon or, you know, when you die, but nothing in between. I find either one of those extremes unhelpful and not really faithful to our biblical witness. We have hope now, and we have hope for all of eternity. But how and why? I'll admit that this question is a bit of a personal quest for me. I'm preaching to myself this morning because I have been asked if I have hope or in what I have hope. So I I, I guess I don't do a very good job of conveying Uh, my understanding of Christian hope very well, because I think the person asking thought I was utterly hopeless. So given these texts before us this morning, I thought that I would share some thoughts. Let me start out by pointing out those two extremes that ought to be avoided. Not far from us, the nation's largest church gathers uh, every Sunday morning. Uh, You know, it's where the Rockets used to play. And the pastor there is really an expert at identifying Christian hope as the blessings that will solve all of your imminent problems. More money, a better job, you know, a nicer home, a healing of illness. Those blessings will be unleashed if, and really only if, you you declare the right words, positive words. You must bring positivity into your life. If you say negative things, it brings negativity into your life. Mostly absent, or maybe it's just assumed, is the eternal reality of the person. Just not a lot of talk about things like sin, death, and the devil. And if you want to be saved from sin and death, well, the Bible teaches you need to repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ. Sin, death, and the devil. They, they usually don't even make cursory appearances in thousands of churches that have located Christian hope into the blessings that you might get tomorrow if you do and say the right things. Therefore, those who would follow such a teacher who so simplify Christian hope are really placing their souls in great peril. Now, the other extreme only emphasizes your eternal soul. This is kind of the typical street preaching message. And I really have a soft spot for street preachers because they're doing hard work. But they have to simplify things. In the 15 seconds, they might have someone's attention. So they might say, if if you're going to die right now, are you going to go to heaven or hell? Right? That's the, that's the whole of the message. Where are you going to go when you die? A valid question, by the way. But there's kind of a danger to that sort of simplification or that kind of teaching, which is that, well, if you, if you want to go to heaven, you have to make a confession of Christ as your Lord, also a good thing to do, um, but there's really no follow-up on that. There's no discipleship, there's no growing in the faith, and, uh, or, or there's really a loss of the lordship of Christ. 
You know, Jesus becomes your Savior when you make that decision, when you make that public proclamation. But is he your Lord? Is he your Lord the day after that and the day after that and the day after that? It, it, it simplifies things to eternity only, getting your ticket punched into heaven and boom, you're good to go. Well, let's look at the texts that we're given this morning. You know, it's often the case that our brothers and sisters faced great travails in the centuries that preceded us. They found themselves in, in, in far worse situations than we find ourselves, and yet they were able to produce documents of hope. For example, our reading from Isaiah 40 this morning, there's a lot of hope in that text. In Isaiah 40, uh, we read from Isaiah 40 every Advent. We always pair it with the preaching of John the Baptist. Uh, the beginning of uh, Isaiah 40 is, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. In other words, the Israelites were in exile during the time of Isaiah 40, and Isaiah is saying, you will, you will be released from your exile. Your warfare is ending. You will be going back home. God is still with you. God is still sovereign over the affairs of this world. And so when we have uh, our reading from Psalm, or Isaiah 40 rather, it, it's the same context. The Israelites are in exile in Babylon, but actually things are, are, are getting very dark because the Persian army is ascending. The Persian army is on the march. And so now the Israelites are saying, uh-oh, we're already under the, captor, the captivity of the Babylonians, sort of a devil-you-know situation. You know, we've adapted to this life here in Babylon. We're, we're still around, and we're studying Daniel and Sunday school, and this is during the captivity, and no doubt Daniel helps the Israelites uh, maybe get somewhat comfortable under the Babylonians. But here come the Persians. And we've heard some really scary things about the Persians. What's going to happen if they defeat the Babylonians? Now we're going to be like prisoners of war. What if they're, what if they're worse than the Babylonians? Any man would have been terrified for his wife and children, not to mention his own self, for the thunder of war was on the horizon. So what hope could these people have had? Really dire situation. And yet Isaiah chapter 40 is a a, a, a chapter of hope, so much so that we quote it every Advent. We sing the hymn, Comfort, Comfort, O My People, right? John the Baptist quotes from Isaiah 40. That's where we get, uh, make the way of the, uh, the, the Lord straight, make his paths straight. And so in our portion of chapter 40 of Isaiah, we're reminded that God is in charge of the whole earth. Great language this morning. He, he sits above it, Right? Uh, we are like grasshoppers. We fret over empires and their cruelties, but God will judge them, for they're like insects in his sight. God will never tire of defending his people. He will strengthen them so that those who wait on the Lord shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So you tell me, is there hope in those verses? Is it immediate, eternal? 
If I offered that same word of hope, if I quoted those scriptures to somebody who is having a, a very difficult time, would that be enough? Would it be good enough for you? Or do you demand more, some kind of certainty, maybe some kind of prosperity? What if I said that I, I couldn't offer that because I just can't make promises on God's behalf that I can't guarantee that God himself doesn't make? I think being unwilling to do that makes me sound hopeless at times. Now, in the case of these Israelites, God eventually does provide for their return to Jerusalem. In fact, the very first words of the uh, psalm, Psalm 147 that we read, are post-exile. I believe it says something like Yahweh, the word for Lord, right? The Lord is rebuilding Jerusalem. The exile is over. They're moving back. And you know who funded their return from uh, Babylon to Israel? The Persians. Remember the Persians? We're so afraid of in Isaiah 40. Darius becomes king. Not a good person by any means, but he funds the return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. The temple wall that's in Jerusalem right now, uh, that is the, the, the last thing remaining of that second temple that was built, uh, rebuilt um, about 400 years B.C. or so. Now, this wasn't the hope. It didn't come, maybe, when the Isaiah 40 was written. Right? So things, God working in the world, it doesn't always happen when we want it or when we demand it. Indeed, Christian hope is often generational. The greatest act of faith this side of heaven, other than proclaiming Christ as our Lord, that we can have is having or adopting children. That's an act of hope. Even as various troubles uh, surround us in the world, if you have or have adopted children, well, you dared to hope, really, that God would redeem things, that God would make things better. How often do people say, I can never bring children into this world? It's a terrible place. Yeah, they said that 100 years ago, and 100 years before that, and 100 years before that. Da, 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 da. People 100 years ago would be like, why wouldn't you want to bring children into this world? You have penicillin. Everything's great for you. Penicillin and soon-to-be flying cars. What's wrong? Jetpacks, apparently they're a real thing. Anyway, having children, it's an act of hope. You dare to believe that, that things will be okay for your children. Maybe your children will be part of making things better. And it may not happen today. Maybe you won't see those things, but maybe your children will, or your grandchildren. That's an Isaiah 40 kind of hope. Now, Psalm 47, or Psalm 147, I was drawn to a line near the end. And I really want you to hear what I'm, I'm saying. I, I want to keep my categories clear here. So I might be a little repetitive. But actually, the, the, uh, the, the lectionary, the appointed readings for our day-to-day, -day, did not include verses 19 and 20. It was only 20C. Verse 20, the third portion of it, which is the word hallelujah, or praise Yahweh. And uh, so let's look at 19 and 20, because just before that in verse 18, it speaks of this hope that we have. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his ordinances. Hallelujah! So this psalm, again, it's written after the exile, 
the Israelites are now rebuilding the land in Jerusalem. God has not abandoned them after all, right? And what do they possess that no other nation has? What are they so proud of? Ordinances, the law of God. Their hope is in the possession of this law. And rather than saying they're crazy for that, I'm going to say I think they're right for that. In this law, you actually find a good life. I mean, if you stopped anybody on the side of the road and said, hey, would you like to be obedient to the Hebrew laws with me? They'd look at you crazy. But if you said, what if I took out all the ceremonial aspects, you know, slaughtering bulls and, you know, temples and burning offerings, you know, on an altar and things like that. What if you were to say, which is what we should believe, by the way, that actually the law of God produces a wonderful life? Like, if we're obedient to it. It's a big if because we fall into sin. That's why we have confession at the start of every one of our services. But if we're obedient to the law of God, it actually produces, well, sobriety, fruitfulness, faithful relationships, you know, no murder or theft or violence. That all sounds pretty good to me. Contentment with what you have. Thou shalt not covet after all. Basically, inner peace, familial peace, financial peace, and communal peace. If we're obedient to the law of God. Should we not then strive to be obedient to God's law? Would we be crazy for desiring that others would be obedient to the law of God and produce this kind of fruit? These are things that people don't usually say in more kind of Lutheran circles because for us it's all about the gospel. Our hope is in the gospel. And what I'm trying to say is that I, I do have hope in this day. And part of my hope is that more people would be obedient to the law of God because I really do believe it produces a wonderful world. We are the Israel of God. We are the inheritors of his law. And I do believe in that law we find hope. Now, I said I wanted to be clear, so let me make some caveats. You should know that without the gospel of Jesus Christ, without God becoming flesh, dying on a cross and rising from the dead, we would have no hope in eternal life. Even if the law produced a good society, we'd still be fundamentally hopeless because we'd die and that would be it. So, we are not saved by the law. We're saved by grace and not by obedience. But my hope in this life right now is not in making some ridiculous declarations that will make me rich, but really in proclaiming the full gospel, the full message of God, so that as many people as possible might strive to be obedient to God's law. I don't think we're crazy for finding some hope in that, and I don't think it's antithetical to the gospel either. So I began my sermon asking where I find hope. Well, Ultimately, my hope is in the cross of Christ. We proclaim the, the dead and resurrected Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus paid for all of my sins, and at his resurrection, he shows us the kind of uh, glorified body we will receive when he does come again to judge the living and the dead. I have absolute hope that my eternal life will be in the presence, for all of eternity, in the presence of a loving and faithful God. And as for today, I'm not a utopian. I can't make promises that God doesn't make. I don't think that makes me hopeless. I'm hopeful that through the work that we do as a church, we can uh, speak about God's law in a positive way and, and be hopeful that other people would seek to be obedient to God's law because that actually does produce a wonderful world, a world of hope 
and joy and peace. Amen.